I'm excited. I've been let loose. When the adults are away, the children shall play. Is that how it goes? So I, I don't often get to speak to adults. I speak two, three times a week with children, teens. I'm very comfortable in that space. Adults. Uh, yeah. um, anyway, <laughs> look, it's, it's great. I do enjoy it. I have to keep reminding myself that you guys are just big kids um, and everything will be fine. So today's passage in the Meet Jesus series is a little bit out of chronological order, but we're okay with that. Last week, Jason was up here and talking about uh, Jesus and rivers of living water and relationship with the Holy Spirit. And he was speaking from John chapter 7 towards the end, sort of verse 38 there around. Um, if you missed it, I encourage you to go and check it out uh, on YouTube, uh, New Life Church Fremantle, uh, or on our uh, Spotify podcast. It's also up there as well. You may not know we have that, but we do. We have a Spotify podcast. You can listen to all the teachings every week. Um, so we're going backwards, and we're going to the start of John 1. And I thought I would do sort of a discovery Bible study. Some of you know what that is. If you're part of a D1 group, you know what that is. You know how that functions. We've talked about it from up here before. Um, and I'm just going to say this outright. I'm not doing it properly. I'm not going to stick strictly to how it's supposed to be done because that's not my goal. But I am using it as a structure. And... Um, we're going, to, we're going to go through this passage and we're going to answer these four questions. What do I learn about Jesus? What do I learn about people? What can I obey or how can this passage impact how I live? And who am I going to share this with this week? Okay. So these are questions you can ask yourself anytime you're reading the Bible. Just take a little chunk and go, okay, here's four questions. Simple way for me to study the Bible. Uh, my wife, Lauren, and I, we were talking about this earlier this week, how how important it is to talk out and live out the revelation that you receive. Sharing it with one another, this question of who am I going to share this with, sharing it with one another is one of the ways that the Christian body builds up each other. It's that iron sharpens iron. And actually, we were talking about this at Youth on Friday night um, in one of the small groups, was discussing what do we come to church for? And part of it is this sort of iron sharpens iron. You have a perspective on a, to on a passage. I have a different one. And are they wrong? Are they right? How does that all work? And you, you sort of draw closer to Jesus in the middle of all that. So let's start with question one. What do we learn about Jesus? Well, in verse one, we learn that the institutional opposition to Jesus had grown so much that the Jewish leaders were gathering to plot how to kill Jesus. The question I have here is, is this special knowledge from Holy Spirit? Or is this just general information that everybody knows? We're after Jesus. If you see him, we're going to kill him. Which would be a fair enough reason to stay away from Jerusalem. Um, now, normally, I, in a DBS model, you would just sit with that. You wouldn't draw in any extra information, and then you'd sort of move on. Um, but I'm a, I am going to draw in a couple of things. So, uh, Judea and Galilee. So, he starts in Galilee... He won't go down to Jerusalem in Judea. They are regions. Okay, I don't know if you can... I'll try and get out of people's way. You've got Galilee at the top there. You've got Judea down here. Jerusalem is here. And we're not clear where he is up there somewhere. Um, but they're about 150 kilometers away from each other. Okay? It, it might be a bit closer if you start to the north of Judea and... and to the south of Galilee, but 150 is a good sort of generalization for any sort of distance between the two. 
Um, and depending on the speed of your walk, it could take you six or seven days all the way up to two and a half weeks. If you've got children, it might be longer. Um, it would be longer with my children. Uh, this is a circle on a map of Perth. The red dot, believe it or not, is us. I, if you zoom in all the way in, it, it's, it's this building right here where we are today. That is a 150 metre, 150 kilometre radius. And you'll see at the bottom, the easiest landmark is the bottom here, Bunbury. It just exceeds beyond Bunbury. So imagine, put yourself in this position. The Lord Mayor of Bunbury wants your death. He's not a Lord Mayor, is he? It's Perth. It's the Mayor of Bunbury, whatever. Um, but the local government of Bunbury is plotting your death. You'd probably stay away as well. In verse 6, Jesus says, Now is not the right time for me to go, meaning to go to Jerusalem, except the context is the festival of shelters. Jason talked about this last week. Every man was expected to go to the festival of shelters and present themselves at the temple. And Jesus says it's not the right time. So that, might, that could be a little bit confusing. Like he's supposed to go, but he's not going to go. Um, however, in a couple of the Gospels, including John, Jerusalem means more than just the city. Um, Jerusalem is the storm center of the Messiah's ministry, where he vindicates, this is a quote from a man called RVG Tasker, where he quotes, his, he vindicates his claims before consummating his work by suffering outside its walls. Jerusalem is the end goal. I think if you go and read Mark, I think it's Mark, I should have checked, but I didn't. Um, I think if you read Mark, Jesus is constantly on his way to Jerusalem. It says that. While Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, even though he's pinging all over the map, if you actually plot it out. The reason is Mark is telling you everything, his entire ministry, everything is moving towards Jerusalem, moving towards the cross. And that's what he's getting to. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. Jerusalem, when he says, it's not my time to go down, he's not meaning to go to the city. He's talking about going to his death. Because we actually see in a few verses later, once you go to sort of verse 11 through 13, 14, uh, Jesus does go down. He follows in secret and stays in private. Um, I was up here last May and I was talking about John the Baptist from John chapter 1. And back then I spoke about how John was confident in who he was and who he wasn't. He trusted in God's plan for him and chose obedience to God rather than people. Some of you will remember that, some of you won't, that's fine. Go back and listen to it, podcast. Here we see Jesus doing the same thing. He knows who he is, he knows his part in God's perfect plan, and he moves according to the Father's timing and not the whims of fickle people. He says, it's not my time to go. So, what do we learn about Jesus? That he's someone who moves and acts according to God's plan. He understands that he is serving the Father's plan and he won't be swayed by those around him, whether they are well-intentioned or not. Um, and he's hated by the world because he calls them out for their evil deeds. Question two. What do we learn about people? So in this passage, there are two groups of people we can identify. The Jewish leaders and Jesus' brothers. The Jewish leaders get a one-sentence statement telling us they're plotting Jesus' death. That's it. There isn't necessarily a lot to go on or glean from this particular verse. We don't get any justification, just that this is the course of action that they've adopted. Now, if you want to dig a bit deeper and look at some context and see what led up to that, you go backwards a little bit and you go into John chapter 6. 
you'll find that Jesus fed a minimum of 5,000 people with a very small amount of food. It's like a degustation meal. He won the hearts of people. He claimed to be God. And he endorsed cannibalism. None of you laughed. That's supposed to be a joke. That's fine. It is a joke, but so often we read the Bible and we're so comfortable with our perspective on it, we forget what the original audience heard. If you go to John 6, 53, it says, I tell you the truth, unless, the flesh of the Son of Man, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. We read that and go, ah, oh, communion, feast of Jesus. We did that already today. We're good. But what the original audience heard was actually a call to eat flesh and drink blood. It's extremely offensive for them. And John 6, 66 says many of his disciples walked away that day. They couldn't handle it. So from John's perspective, because he's writing and crafting this, the, what happened in chapter 6 is part of the reason for the Jews wanting to kill Jesus. Now, let's have a look at Jesus' brothers. This is verses 3 through 5. Yeah. Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. Now, the words here show that although Jesus' brothers knew him, they did not truly know or understand him. If you want to give them the benefit of the doubt, you could say that they are eager, albeit immature and unwise, encouraging Jesus to rise up, amass his followers and take his rightful place, remembering that he just lost a lot of followers in John 6, 66. Perhaps they've got dollar signs in their eyes. And they're seeing the potential benefits of their family connection to the Messiah. And so there's a selfish motivation there. Or, if you don't want to give them the benefit of the doubt, it's very easy to see it as a sarcastic taunt. They're inciting him to act big, gather more disciples. Perhaps his brothers have suffered socially for their connection to Jesus just like his disciples do. Perhaps they despise him for it, for the pain and the suffering they have to endure because of who Jesus is. Perhaps it's a bit similar to Joseph's brothers in Genesis 37 and their despising of Joseph. Now, because verse 5 says they didn't believe in him, I'm inclined to go with a more sarcastic interpretation. I think this is the probably more accurate one. But neither of those responses show an accurate understanding of who Jesus was, uh, what his God-appointed mission was. And it highlights an important truth. Familiarity with Jesus does not and did not guarantee faith in him. This is a quote from uh, a man called Dr. Constable. And I encourage you, if you're doing Bible study and you want a commentary, go and look up Dr. Constable. He's done, I don't know how he managed this, he has written extensive commentaries on every book of the Bible. He's still alive. And it's free. It's all free. It's sonic light, if you want to go and look it up. Anyway, 
Another way you could put this is that familiarity doesn't guarantee relationship. And this is a confronting reality. And it should set some kind of warning alarm off inside your spirit. Because it's something that we have to fight against. Familiarity, over-familiarity. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, Jesus says, On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and performed many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. How is that even possible? How does that work? How do we have people operating in the power of God, prophesying, declaring the testimony of Jesus, praying and seeing demons delivered, performing miracles, and yet on judgment day, Jesus looks at them and says, I don't know you. I work with children and youth. My brain always goes to the uh, posters on teenage walls of various celebrities. There was a girl who comes to mind. She was a big uh, Justin Bieber fan, and she knew everything. His favorite meal, favorite color, how many tattoos he had. That type of stuff. She was exceptionally familiar with Justin Bieber. But if you were to place her in front of him, he would say, I don't know you. Now, it's not quite the same, but this is the idea. Over-familiarity is not relationship. Now, I'm not Jesus, and I'm trying my best to be, but I'm not. Um, and, I want to su- and I'm open to being wrong on this next part, but I want to suggest to you that Jesus is making that connection, that familiarity is not relationship. Knowing the Bible, being able to do those things. Now, I I don't claim to know how that works, how you can perform miracles and deliver people from demons, um, but for a relationship. But Jesus says there are people. And so that familiarity doesn't bring relationship. And I'm feeling that challenge afresh this week as I've been preparing this. So let me tell you, Uh, A little bit about myself, because this is my talk. Um, See, that's me, young, handsome. And this this one here, this is is me. This is how I got my start in the worship team. That's bongos and a cowbell, in case you're wondering. Cowbell is right there. Bongos are there. At one point in my life, I expanded that, and I had chimes. Many of you know me, you know my family, and perhaps in general terms, you might know parts of our stories. What I'm going to share with you this morning may have you nodding your head in a few minutes going, I see, this explains much. Um, So let's go. I am a pastor's kid. My parents have been in vocational ministry in one form or another for my entire life. My first years of life were spent in Katanning, where my dad was uh, the associate pastor, I think, which covered everything Lots of, lots of stuff. Anyway, um, and my childhood was full of the Bible, full of prayer, worship, because mum was worship leader, and, and discussions about God. It was inescapable. All my grandparents are Christian too, and they're all still alive for the moment. Um, my nana, who recently had a stroke, she would have Bible story books on the beds that when we would come over, I remember, I have memories of my brother Daniel and I are racing up the hall into that room to go and read our books, lie on that bed. My one, the one that was always on my bed, was Elijah and the Fiery Chariot. 
And I very much enjoyed that story. My other grandparents, whenever we went to have a sleepover at their place, over breakfast, we would always do Every Day with Jesus. Some of you know what that is? Give me a nod. The Every Day with Jesus booklets. Yes. My daily bread, that kind of stuff. And uh, that was just life. I was also the kind of kid that would read Bible trivia books for fun. Shiloh's nothing. (laughs) The Bible is full of fascinating facts and all kinds of interesting things. And I can probably tell you lots of things about the Bible. Uh, As a 10 or 11 year old, my parents purchased the audio Bible on cassette tape. Because that's what you had back then. About 1997, 96. It was probably about 48 cassettes. A side, B side, get the whole Bible out. If you were fortunate, you might have had one of those uh, sound systems where when it got to the end of the A side, it just knew how to start doing the B side. You didn't have to change it around. Otherwise, you got that tick, tick, tick. You're smiling because some of you know. I assume you're smiling. You've got masks on. Um, But I'm hearing the giggles. Um, I used to fall asleep with that on, and it would just stop in the middle of the night, way past when I was uh, actually falling asleep. And uh, my favorite one to fall asleep to was the book of Revelation. And now some of you are going, this makes sense. (laughs) I have a distinct memory as an 11-year-old. This is going to expose me a little bit here. I had no shirt on because I was a cool dude. I was in the kitchen washing dishes because that's what obedient children do. I had headphones on. My Sony Walkman cassette player, which they're about that big, clipped into the waistband of my shorts. And away I was going. We had someone who was new to New Life come into our house to have a, have a meeting with mum and dad. Um, in fact, uh, New Life was probably only about 12 months old, if that old, by that point. And they came in and they saw me and they said, oh, what are you listening to? Second Kings. Now, you're laughing because you already know, but they didn't know. They're thinking Hanson, Jazza Clay, DC Talk. Those types of things, which we had those CDs, but I had a Walkman, so it was different. I didn't have a Discman at that point. Um, and there was this sort of progression of like confusion, what is Second Kings, to I wonder what Second Kings sounds like, to there's Second Kings in the Bible, to uh, this kid is listening to the Bible on a Saturday morning doing the dishes with no shirt on. Um, there was a bit of shock in that and a bit of a laugh and a giggle. Now, this story is not like a humble brag. I'm like, look, I'm so awesome. I listen to the Bible. And it's not meant to be like, I'm an awesome kid, because I wasn't. In fact, I was thinking about this this morning. Uh, back when I was part of New Life Kids, I'm the children and youth pastor now, but at one point I was part of New Life Kids. And Mrs. Pelling, who is actually out there right now with my two children, like, just think about that for a minute, 20 or so years of serving this community and the children, You want to encourage someone? Go and encourage Mrs. Pelling. Not this one. You can encourage her too, but that's not what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I got kicked out on at least one occasion. Alison said, no, you cannot come in. You are not a pleasant child. (laughs) And I think, I'm like, uh, I'm worried my son's following my footsteps. Anyway, um, I don't say any of this as a humble brag. I don't say any of this as like, here's a model for your child. This is how they should be. It's not a model for my children. I simply mean to put this out there. When we talk about familiarity with the Bible, I have this. 
I've sat under Bible teaching my entire life. I'm not a new Christian. I've read the Bible backwards and forwards. I've read multiple chunks of it multiple times. I have listened to the Bible endlessly. I am very familiar. Yet all that familiarity didn't actually result in what I would call a wonderful living relationship with Jesus as a teenager. Beyond sort of a cultural or family, like this is what we do. And that was very sincere in that. Please don't, like, I wasn't this bitter kid. I was, I was very sincere in that, but it was very much like, this is what my family does, and I'm coming along for a ride, and I'm not complaining about that, but I don't own it. My familiarity didn't translate to relationship until I hit about 18. And I had to confront my familiarity and go, oh, I need relationship. I was at the International House of Prayer. I'm there, I'm spending six hours a day in the prayer room, with nothing but a Bible, a journal, and a couple of books. Two in particular, at After God's Own Heart by Mike Bickle and Pleasures Evermore by Sam Storms. Great reads if you want to. And during the early days there, I had some great encounters with God. Some like nights of just weeping, feeling his pleasure and his delight, feeling him challenge me on stuff, on, on areas of sin or things that need to be submitted. And it was awesome. By the end of about month two of this, the shine starts to come off a little bit. It becomes, and it does, this is life. The shine comes off lots of things quickly. And so I began to sort of sit in the teachings and go, I know this already. I began to read the Bible going, I've read this before. Can I skip it? And evidently I wasn't the only one who was experiencing that. Because the director of the program, Stuart Greaves, who's a man who I have a great deal of respect for, came in one night, cancelled the class we were supposed to have, sat down and said, we're going to talk about this. Now, I don't remember everything that was said that night. What I do remember is the, the, the challenge or, the, or the, the confrontation that he placed in front of us and said, if, basically, if you find yourself saying, I've heard this before, or I've read this before, I can move on, that is a proud response that says that um, information has entered your head but revelation has not met your heart and that's a problem and I, I speak this from experience the, 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 the I already know that or I've already read that that you might feel, certainly I felt and still fight with at times that is betraying a level of pride in your own heart can you truly say that you know the Word of God and you know God? Do you realize if you know God, you are bigger than God? You become God? Do you understand how that works, like the logic with that? Nothing can be bigger than God because that would be God. So if you're like, I know God, I got it, I got it sorted, then you are God. And we know that's not right. <laughs> so... The response of I already know that comes from the Word of God entering our minds and that's where it stops. We don't sit with it, we don't process it, we don't allow it to translate into revelation that is lived out and changes our hearts. Oh, I know I need to pray for my enemies and those who persecute me. Okay? Are you actually doing it? You're in a conflict situation. Perhaps you've got a roommate, some of you guys down here. Perhaps you've got a roommate or a boss, and it's just, it's just conflict all the time. Romans 12 says that we have to 
show kindness and love because it's like heaping coals on their head. Do you do it? Has that, has that, because you know this. I'm sure you know this. I know it's not the first time you've heard me, heard anybody say heaping coals on someone's head. But do you actually live that out? Does that become your default response? Or does that information sit here and then you find justification for reasons not to? That's what we're talking about. So, familiarity, familiarity did not and does not guarantee faith or relationship in Jesus. We have to fight for that. So third question, what can I obey or how can this passage impact my life? There's an organization in the United States called Disciple Makers and their president, Peter Kroll, wrote this. Beware the deceptive wiles of familiarity, that sweet but double-edged virtue that makes you feel at home in the word of God. Familiarity of the tender variety persists in reminding you of the gospel and deepening your communion with Christ. But if you're not careful, cold-hearted familiarity will betray you with kisses, poison your wine glass, and watch impassively while your life slips steadily away. You might not even realize it's happening. Unexamined familiarity will prevent you from looking at the book, that's the Bible, because such familiarity crowds out curiosity. It imperceptibly stiffens necks, hardens hearts, and deafens ears. That's a... That's a serious warning. We have to learn how to develop tender hearts and fight against that familiarity that stiffens necks and deafens ears. So how do we do it? Here's, here's, my, here's me submitting my suggestion. And I'll be honest, this made me proud. I wrote these all out and went, look at that, they all start with A. I'm a real preacher. Um, <laughs> Adopt a posture of humility. We need to recognize that our knowledge and our understanding is imperfect and partial at best. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete. You don't know everything. I don't know everything. Don't live like you do. It's simple. Just go, this is a rule for life, but especially in your relationship with the Bible and God. Adopt a posture of humility. I don't know it all. I don't. Number two, arrest, I already know that thinking. Having the thought, I already know that, isn't necessarily a problem. It's an alert that some careful, some careful consideration needs to be taken. Don't beat yourself up about it, all right? Instead, Go, thank you, God, for alerting me to where there is pride in my heart. Help me to choose humility here. It's an opportunity for you to grow. I remember listening to Justin Rizzo. He's a worship, he was a worship leader at the International House of Prayer. He, he talked about um, when he's leading worship. Now, I'm, I'm making up the number here because I don't remember the exact quote, but the point is it's a lot. When he's leading worship, he, fi- he might find that he's in a two-hour two window of time, His brain is distracted a thousand times. And he used to feel so bad about that. Like, why can't I just be, why can't my heart be captured by the beauty of Jesus? And sometimes it is. But why can't my heart just be so captured by the beauty of Jesus that my focus is on him and him alone the whole time? Isn't that wonderful to stand before the throne room of God and worship the Lamb? Shouldn't that be enough? But he began to realize, actually, A thousand distractions is a thousand opportunities for me to say yes to Jesus again. 
There's nothing wrong with that. And he would just say, yes, Jesus, I choose you now. That thing that has come and brought distraction, I'm going to choose you. I'm going to choose you. And so what we have to do with I already know that thinking is go, oh, that's an alert. No, Jesus, help me. Because it's an opportunity for you to discover Jesus in a new way. See, if you truly believe that the word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword, then it can cut through the familiarity of your heart with renewed truth and revelation. But if you don't arrest the thought, you don't give yourself that opportunity. The third one is this. Ask Holy Spirit for revelation. It's really that simple. Ask Holy Spirit for revelation, new or renewed. John Piper says, I pray Psalm 119.18 each time I go to the Bible. Open my eyes that I may behold wonders in your law. I think that the point of that prayer is that there are wonders everywhere in the law, in the Bible, in the instruction of God. And the psalmist is aware that he doesn't often feel or see wonderful things as wonderful. So he asks for it. It's the same for us. Our minds and our spirits get dull, and so we say, Holy Spirit, breathe life into me. Create the habit of opening your Bible, and before you start reading any word, just go, Holy Spirit, breathe revelation to me this, this morning, or whenever it is you read, maybe it's before bed, whatever. Go, God, I want to see wonders in your law. I choose to believe that it's beautiful and glorious, and I want it. So make me come alive. So we adopt a posture of humility. We want to arrest. I already know that thinking. We want to ask Holy Spirit for revelation. And as the worship team make their way up, let's just do the last question here. Who are you going to share this with? Oh, I don't have it. Who are you going to share this with this week? You see, expression deepens impression. It's a phrase that we use a lot around here because it's true. Telling someone on Tuesday or Wednesday this week about those three A's. Have you already forgotten them? They should be, yeah, they're right there. Helps it to go deeper into your spirit, into your mind. It means it's either been marinating for a few days and it's still just sitting there in your spirit and you're just like, oh, and I tell someone it just wants to come out. Or... You've got to think and sort of draw back and go, what was that thing again? That's right, I remember now. Because we want that tender familiarity that Peter Kroll talked about that persists in reminding us of the gospel and deepening our communion with Christ. We don't want over-familiarity with the Bible that leaves us cold-hearted. We want tender, tender love for this book because it's the self-revelation of God. So perhaps the Holy Spirit's been highlighting something to you this morning. Just take a moment to do some business. Maybe you've got a confessed attitude of your own heart that says, I already know this. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness and renewed revelation. Or maybe this morning you're like, I'm not over familiar with the Bible. But God's invitation to you to learn to love it. 
I want to invite you to stand this morning. And I'm going to pray. I want to pray Psalm 119, verse 18 over us as a community this morning before we sing. Psalm 119, verse 18 says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonders in your law. Heavenly Father, we stand here before you as your people. And we're asking for wisdom and revelation again. God, as we draw near to you, as we go into your word, we ask that you would open our eyes, that we would behold the wonders of your words. God, no longer would it be dry, barren, boring, dull, but God, we would find you. Jesus, as we pour over the Gospels, we would see you. We would experience revelation. We would experience truth. God, open our eyes. Open the eyes of our heart. Holy Spirit, for every person in this room and watching online, God, we need to grow in love for your word. We need to have hearts that are anchored in Scripture. Open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in your law. Stir in us this week renewed love for your word. Draw us into the quiet place. And God, for those of us in this room who are even feeling perhaps a level of condemnation going I can't every time I try I just fail God I thank you that with you your mercies are new every morning great is your faithfulness to us you do not give up on us you do not walk away from us but you keep beckoning us in you keep inviting us to know you so God we choose to start from today choose to make the effort, five minutes, ten minutes, so that we would know you, we would grow in love, and even in the discipline of loving your word. So God, open our eyes this week, as we open your word, and show us wonderful things in your Lord.